Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, the Indo-Pacific, and the struggle for the 21st century. I'm Misha Oslin, your host, and today I am once again joined by my fantastic co-host, occasional co-host, from London, Cindy Yu of The Spectator. Cindy, welcome back. Hi, Misha. Thanks for having me. When are you going to start paying me? Uh, yes. So moving on to our guests now very quickly. Uh, we Once again, we had, we had tons of reader mail. The mailbag came full saying, when will Cindy be back on? She's the only one that understands China among the hosts. Uh, so we, we've brought her back to talk about the 20th Party Congress with two guests. In fact, what I think what we have, we're unrolling our own little standing committee here. We have as our guests... Rana Mitter, professor of Chinese history, modern Chinese history at the University of Oxford and author most recently of uh, The Good War, and Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in Chinese Studies at CSIS, uh, longtime uh, writer and contributor on uh, all things Chinese, who is actually joining us from Tokyo. Rana is in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Cindy is in London, England, and I, of course, am stuck in Washington, D.C. So we have an international panel, internationally dispersed, to talk about today, the center of the world, Beijing. So with no more ado, let me turn it over to Cindy to uh, begin the grilling. <laughs> um, Jude, I'd like to start with you. And just to give us a reflection on the standing committee, the new standing committee uh, that has been appointed or elected, as the party would like to say, this time around, what's significant about it? Uh, well, first of all, Cindy, Misha, uh, thanks um, uh, for having me on. Great, great to be here as well with, with Rana. Um, what is significant about the standing committee? I, I think a number of things. Uh, you were uh, as you were alluding to, this is um, this is not a, a, a real meaningful election, although there's a formality of an electoral process. I, I think for a lot of folks going into this really critical, historic, seismic you know, week and a half we've had with the 20th Party Congress, there wasn't a question of, is Xi Jinping going to get a third term? And is he going to more or less move people, um, you know, his own team on, onto the Paul Beer Standing Committee? I think the real question was, is there going to be some element of compromise? Is there going to be an extent to which Xi Jinping um, tries to alleviate or placate other stakeholders in the system, not factions so much, just but others within the party state elite um, who want to see members of their own uh, sort of groupings. And, and what happened is he he clearly now is so dominant in the system that he can co completely and totally disregard um, any other semblance of of um, you know collective balancing or uh, uh, other factions or groupings, he as as the the phrase of the past few days has been you know he ran the table, um, and so what it indicates is just his his comfort with asserting his own interests with with wanton disregard uh, for other interests or factions is is clear. I think we can no longer have the occasional article come out every year asking if Xi Jinping is you know, going to be challenged by elders in the system or, or other factions. We can finally put, put that to bed. I mean, this is Stalin after the purges. I mean, this is now just a complete um, and total, total dominance. Very quickly on the substance of the standing committee, I mean, these are not automatons. These are, these are distinct human beings who... Um, 
um, while they clearly have uh, loyalty and ties to Xi Jinping, in many cases, owe their entire careers to him, individuals like Tsai Chi, Ding Shuixiang, Li Qiang, um, this is a, uh, a group who, um, I think, worryingly for many, doesn't bring the deep breadth of administrative experience that you would expect to see to get to that upper echelon. The Standing Committee is a political body by nature, but historically in the post-Mao era, there has been a, a sort of imperfect movement towards grooming individuals through a series of posts that lead up to a position on the standing committee that give you time across the, the wide spectrum of, of administrative responsibilities, capabilities, um, and, and management skills that you would need. So Li Chang, who's who's likely going to be the premier, we won't know till next year, um, has only served in in provincial positions. Um, since since 1976, you've seen an individual who is going to become a premier first serve as vice premier, um, which gives them a sen an ability to sort of work in the central state council apparatus. That isn't the case. Tai Chi, who is um, utterly and completely unqualified to be in the Politburo Standing Committee, um, owes his entire life and, and senior career to Xi Jinping. At the last party Congress, he rocketed up to the uh, Politburo in a way that already was signaling to people um, that that loyalty um, mattered more than competence. And, and after serving as a party official in Beijing, he is now on the Standing Committee. M just massive questions about how this team was assembled um, in, in, uh, or I should let me put it more accurately, not massive questions on how the team was assembled, but distinct worries about what it will now look like moving forward to have a standing committee um, that has more loyalists than, than competent technocrats. So maybe picking up off of that, Rana, if I could ask you for a bit of the, the larger historical perspective. So I, I would venture to say that this may have been the most uh, widely followed party Congress among non-cognoscenti, right? Among non-China experts. We all do it, um, especially you guys. So you, you do it. But I think there were a lot of people. And if you looked uh, at the papers um, or obviously on, on online on your tablets, I mean, it was it was the front page headlines for a very long time, whereas most weren't. So could you just maybe give us a bit of 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 the of perspective on just how different this party Congress was beyond simply, or was it no different beyond simply Xi Jinping being coronated as as you know, as as Jude was saying, uh, running the tables and and by far the most powerful? Well, Misha, I think that it is a good idea to look at the events of the past week or so in a longer historical perspective. And actually, Jude did a great job there of reminding us that a lot of the norms that we expected, term limits, the turnover of people, the, the rise of technocracy, date really from that period from the 1970s. So we're talking about half a century or so there of, uh, of experience. But we could also look at that half century and look at other moments that in some ways did provide, I think, a kind of wrenching moment as to whether or not this is going to be continuity or change. I think back actually to what it is now 30 years ago, which is 1992, which you might remember is the first Congress that took place after Tiananmen, 1989, the killings of the students and the workers in central Beijing. And although it's forgotten now because the long continuity of China getting back on track and then becoming part of the, the global order seemed to have been an inevitability. At the time, it didn't look that way at all. There are an awful lot of people I remember now wondering whether or not this was in fact a kind of end game for the Chinese Communist Party. Certainly, we now know from inside documentation that 
has been uh, brought out for uh, um, impertinent scholars to, to examine, that there was tremendous amounts of real concern within the system in the early 90s about whether it could be sustained and whether 1989 proved a near-death moment. And that, of course, in a sense, sets the historic stage for a process that we then see developing over decades, which is the determination of the core members of the top leadership never to allow the party to reach any kind of stage where it might find itself in mortal danger. Although I don't think it was quite such a central moment, let's think back just 10 years to the rise and spectacular fall of Bo Xilai, um, the figure who listeners may remember was tipped for the top, not least by himself, um, very charismatic, very high profile leader in the Chinese communist firmament through the, actually really the 1980s all the way up to the, the 2010s. And although we still don't know the full details, perhaps we never will, appears to be involved in some sort of uh, internal party manoeuvre to try and seize power, at least that's what the, the winners w- would claim. And although I don't think that was actually as existential a moment for the party, as you might say, the late 80s, early 90s were, it was still a moment when what we now see, which is the ascendancy of Xi Jinping, I think was probably cemented. Because, of course, she, who had already been nominated as the um, successor, came out of that particular imbroglio, that particular disaster, near disaster for the party of, of the Borsilai affair, very much strengthened. And also, I think, affirmed in the kind of person he is. One of the things that people say when they look at the rise of Xi Jinping is, where did he come from? And in a sense, he was hiding in plain sight. You know, he went through a fairly standard set of procedures, including being party secretary of a big province, uh, Zhejiang. You know, he held a lot of important posts, of course, making connections along the way, some of which are now uh, being seen in that set of top appointments that Jude just mentioned uh, in, in the Politburo. But he did so in a way that never seemed to thrust himself to the forefront. He wasn't a sort of rock star like Bo Xilai at any point. He married a rock star. He married a, a famous <laughs> Chinese singer, uh, Peng Liyue, but it's not quite the same uh, same thing. And in that sense, he emerged as someone who I think learned those historical lessons. And probably if you had to boil it down to one, which is, if you're going to get to the top, you must be fiercely ambitious and ruthless, but you must never show anyone that you're fiercely ambitious and ruthless until you've actually got to the top. And then you can let rip. So by the way, just just as a, as a note, when you said, let's think back 30 years, being the elder statesman of this group, I was thinking, oh, 1950s. So when you said 1990s, <laughs> I, I didn't hear anything else you said after that. So um, so that's that, that's I'm, fantastic. I'm, I'm see actually, your, your, your leave it to beaver uh, T-shirt that the listeners can't see <laughs> on the Zoom there. Uh, the but, father yeah. knows best. Exactly right. Um, actually, if I could just continue for, for one brief follow up with that before um, turning it back over to Cindy. So you wrote uh, in The Guardian uh, just a few days ago uh, in response to the Party Congress, uh, again, with the historical perspective that oh, the China that we have become used to over the past, again, 40 years now, so going back, you know, going back to the 1980s, uh, going forward is is likely to be much more closed than the China that we've become used to, and yet still engaged with the world in, in in its own ways. Can you explain a little bit of that? And again, give us maybe the perspective of why, if it was this this moment, not just the, the Congress, but this moment is is a turning point in terms of China's relations with the world, but also our our own assessment of our relations with China. Yeah. I think that the political settlement, the political actually ecology, you might call it, or ecosystem that is being put into place right now by the Chinese Communist Party is 
fascinating, unique, but also I think for the rest of us, probably going in a direction that we would deeply regret, which is a form of what I call moderated isolation. Let me explain what I mean by that. I think that the China that people who've got used to China from the Western world over the last 30 years knew, one where business travelers could fly in and out for a three-day meeting, where students might go for a kind of, you know, two-week, get to know the culture placement, you know, learn calligraphy, eat noodles, you know, find out about Chinese culture, all the kind of small, small change stuff that just lets people get to know each other and um, uh, uh, smooths the way a bit. Almost all of that, I think, is likely to, if not be gone, at least to be much, much harder to find in the near future. Because the COVID regulations, which have now become famous that essentially you have to do quarantine over a period before you know coming into the country, Chinese citizens as well as uh, foreigners, I should, uh, should say, I think actually laying the ground for a much more regulated system of moving in and out of the country as a whole. I think that we're unlikely to go back to a system where it's basically free for all coming in and in in and out. But unlike the days when, um, you know, in the 60s and 70s, China was essentially really very difficult to get into from the outside world in any mode. We now live in a world where, of course, China has a huge, vast virtual Sinosphere. In other words, a Chinese language. Also, also there is an English language version, to be fair. But ecology in the virtual world which is being curated from China itself. I was about to say from Beijing, but it's not just from Beijing. In a sense, somewhere like Hangzhou, which of course is the world headquarters of Alibaba, one of the great corporations in the world, is important too. too. So is Shenzhen, which actually is the heart of the kind of new tech-enabled vision that China has for um its place in the world of green energy, electric vehicles, and all of that. The difference is that I think that the system is going to be encouraging the outside world to encounter China much more through that virtual set of encounters without the inconvenient necessity of actually running around causing trouble in the country itself. And I think the people living in China are going to be encouraged much more to engage with the outside world also through that wide-ranging virtual environment, but one that, of course, is heavily controlled by the CCP, who filter very strongly which parts of the outside world get to come in for a consideration and which parts get left uh, left out. And I think it's an extraordinarily um, important experiment. It's not one that we necessarily know the outcome of, but I think that is very, very antithetical to liberal values. Yeah, I mean, Jude, you, you and Rana have both talked about Xi Jinping getting this kind of absolute or ruthless power. Um, but my question is in two parts to you, Jude, which is firstly, you know, what is the role of internal party opposition in this Chinese Communist Party before Xi Jinping? You know, how much do these different factions of the party really change things on the standing committee before we saw much more diverse representation, you might say, of different parts of the party, which we don't now. So second part of my question is, now that Xi Jinping has run the table, is that a bad thing for the party's own resilience because this its own resilience actually come from this kind of being able to unite the party or have a peaceful transition you know this kind of dictatorship without one man rule which is now over yeah great those are really important um questions i should say on the on the first one um i think we can only hazard imperfect answers because uh, we haven't had for some time a really granular tactile sense of what opposition within the party um, looks like and, and feels like. We see these moments, Rana just mentioned one with, with Boisilai, where it spills out into the surface, or you read Desmond Shum's really great book, Red Roulette, you know, where he gives an indication of the role of finance 
and and sort of e economic actors. Um, but but other than those moments, we're really sort of uh, groping, you know, to try to figure out what what this looks like. I guess I should say, from my own point of view. Um, looking or, or using factions as a heuristic or a model to try to forward look, understand China hasn't worked for some time for me, right? I think even if you were going back five years to the 19th Party Congress, um, where again, the same sets of questions are brought to the table by external analysts of, you know, are, are we going to see the composition of the Politburo, the Central Committee, mm -hmm. the you know, Politburo Standing Committee? Which factions? Is this going to be the, you know, the China Youth League? Is this going to be the Jiang Zemin? Um, and um, it, it never really explained the the outcomes of those meetings. So I think part of this is the is the um, result of a fairly systematic dismantling of other centers of power by Xi Jinping over the last decade. And really, I think that I think he came to success at the 19th Party Congress. Mm. Um, uh, what we just saw here is just an elevated level of dominance and control. Uh, it, it's funny. I I continue to be in meetings where we talk about. Uh, well, it looks like Xi Jinping is really, you know, central, you know, is consolidating his power. And and I think I, I, that happened five or six years ago. I mean, that is, his power has been consolidated for some time now. So I think looking forward, I think we need to develop some new tools to understand how politics operates in, in China. Um, different from the historical ways that that scholars have used, you know, uh, for decades to try to make sense of this. I don't know what that is. So this is a cheap shot. Um, on the resilience question, I think that's easier to, to hazard a guess on. Um, number one, we can just look at the, the fact that until relatively recently, dominant party historiography held that a series of, of steps was taken by the party um, to constrain the power of uh, of the senior most leader um, and to put into place some imperfect mechanisms precisely to assure that the party never again went back to uh, some of the chaos and, and entropy of the Mao era. So those were, for example, you know, putting term limits on the office of, of the presidency in 1982 constitutional revision. This was a um, uh, this was a set of norms Again, imperfect, uh, but norms that had evolved to depressurize the system. Rana talked about some of the age, you know, age uh, limitations that were put in place. Those were always flexible and imperfect. Jiang Zemin changed them twice uh, to move people out. But, but what those did is those um, those even when they were adjusted, there was still an understanding that. Um, we're going to have transitions of leadership groups, which is going to give others a chance at the table or at the trough. Um, and if you knew you were going to have a you or your um, you know coalition or network were going to have a chance at the trough, you could kind of wait things out and and stay content. Also, of course, um, uh, being a part of the party apparatus was for a while a decent chance at rent seeking. That gave you some interest in. Um, uh, in, in the status quo of the party, Xi Jinping has upset that as well. That, that was probably for the better. Uh, but nonetheless, the shared understandings of, of why you supported the status quo of the party have been evolving very rapidly under Xi Jinping. Um, you know, final thought is, you know, we don't want to make too much of this and predict collapse of China. Um, we've predicted 38 of the last zero collapses of the Communist Party of China. So we should, you know, we should humble ourselves about how accurately we understand the both sides of a ledger, you know, we, we can list all the liabilities, but we're not very good at understanding the asset side of the equation. 
But it is really hard to watch some of these evolutions that Rana just laid out in terms of um, uh, the politics in China right now and within the party and not be very, very worried that the equation that helped facilitate stability mm -hmm. since the late 1970s is being adjusted at an incredibly rapid rate and in ways that's clear are provoking deep and profound anxiety amongst many in the in, in the party. Um, final final thought this is this is not something weird and unique to Xi Jinping. Um, th this is not some orientalist you know view. this is in, in fact the the core lesson um, that history and myth teach us about power. Um, this is why we put in place, I mean, this is the plot of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> uh, you know, it is once you gain a hold of power, it is um, very alluring. Um, and it often can times lead you personally to, to, you know, throw yourself off the cliff or take the system with you. So this is just a deep, profound, um, I think, I instance of a, of a really important lesson about uh, human uh, human instincts, power, state power that we're seeing play out right now. Although if you're an accelerationist about the CCP, you might think that this is a good thing, that we're just increasing speed on in this car crash um, I, just very quickly because some of my some of my comrades in america are saying that and i would say be careful what you wish for mm. um, i think it's one thing to find distasteful elements of the communist party and to seek to outcompete it and shape a world of of international order and rules that we we like better than their version but i think we also want to first of all i, I don't want to go on here but just make it we need to start from the ethical understanding that China is not Xi Jinping. It is 1.4 billion people who who have as much right to dignity in the good life as anyone else. And so when we talk about accelerating the decline of China, or even the way we throw away lines like we need to make China grow slower, mm -hmm. the, the practical mm -hmm. result of that is children who are not getting the nourishment they need. It's delays in cognitive development. It's it's people not being able to secure prosperity, get better jobs. I understand there's difficult moral choices to be made when you think about foreign policy and great power competition. But to any, any of the accelerationists, I, I, I just think we need to it, it, take into to account all of the profound ethical considerations that come about with wanting to see a country decline mm, and end of soapbox rant. I couldn't agree with you more, Jude. Um, Rana, is it uh, something that the Communist Party now does better than it did before in parts of history where this opaqueness means that people like us can only kind of stab from the outside? And then when something like the Hu Jintao being I would say manhandled out of the Great Hall of the People happens. We're like, oh my God, what's going on? What can we glean from this? Because the party has got so good at being leak proof compared to what it was before. I mean, excellent point. I mean, on the Hu Jintao um, incident, if that's the right way to put it, just to remind people, so this was the former president who was quite late on in the day in the Congress in front of uh, press, um, sort of helped rather kind of reluctantly, I think, out of his chair, out of the room. Um, I'm going to take a non-apocalyptic view of that particular um, incident, actually. If others have other information, then please feel free. My own feeling was that if it was meant to be some kind of incredibly powerful slap in the face to the former leadership, then it would have then been spread on domestic media but in fact it was very quickly censored on domestic media and the foreign press got hold of it because their mm. coverage for whatever reason couldn't be um uh, couldn't be couldn't be censored um i don't think that this is the way that coordination really works in xi jinping's china when they want you to disappear you just disappear they don't do it necessarily live on, on on tv um but that doesn't invalidate in any sense i think the wider point that you're asking about there which is the question of how the decision making gets made and how we can we can know about it 
I've said, um, actually, I've said for many years, I'll say it again now, that one of the best ways, I think, of trying to understand the CCP is not just to talk to brilliant political scientists like Jude, who you know know everything there is to know about the inside workings that we can glean, and that's not often as much as we might like, but also to talk to anthropologists. Um, I'm thinking actually, for instance, of the excellent anthropologist Frank Pieker, whose book, uh, The Good Communist, is basically based on something you probably couldn't do now, but he did it a few years ago, being able to basically live in to a communist party training school and basically just find out what they actually do on a day-to-day basis. And I think that that was still possible under Hu Jintao back in the 2010s, but wouldn't be possible now. But even now, a lot of things that he learned, I think, are really important in terms of understanding what it is that the party does with decision making and, and how it manages to keep its um, practices so uh, uh, so so sort of um, confined from the outside world. Because one thing that anthropologists study is religion. And understanding a great deal of the way in which the CCP has come to operate as a sort of secular religion, I think is not a bad way to think about it as a whole. I don't want to go too far over the over the top because you know the CC, the Chinese Communist Party is not a religious organization. Uh, it is a secular organization and it's a very powerful one. But in terms of trying to create a mode of understanding about its existence, to try and create well, this is new for Xi Jinping compared to Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin, a leadership cadre that in some senses are outside the normal realms of criticism, the idea of, you know, the, the sacral. Again, I don't want to push too far with this, but if you look at the respect for which the late Queen Elizabeth, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, was held, you know, around the world when her funeral was being held, there was a sort of global sense that actually this was someone you didn't... Um, necessarily choose to uh, to criticize publicly because of her standing in the world. Now, I think that Xi Jinping would no doubt very much like to have the kind of standing that the late Queen Elizabeth does. I'm not sure that that's necessarily in practice the case. And I think for a political leader who undertakes policy as opposed to play, plays a role, it's actually not something you can really aspire to uh, in, in a genuine sense, certainly in the outside world. But domestically, I think that wider sense that actually the space around Xi Jinping is sort of sacred space. And, you know, sacred and religious are not the same, necessarily the same thing. We can say that the memory of certain traumatic events in history, you know, the Second World War as a, as a sacred memory to many people. That's the kind of space I think the party are going for. And that provides an explanation in part for why the processes become so transparent, so uh, lack so much transparency. It is also a thing that's graded. And again, you know, Jude and uh, his, his comrades do plenty of work on this sort of thing. The lower levels of the party's operation, to some extent, are actually still quite visible. You know, people will talk about how it is that you make an application to get into the party uh, and um, as a sort of, you know, young professional in your 20s or 30s living in a big city you know we know we know a certain amount but actually about the application forms about how hard it is the kind of political tests you have to do downloading an app uh, that enables you to kind of practice your your knowledge of the party it's not easy to get in but once you move up the ladder, once you start actually getting to those higher positions when you're kind of given party secretary role, and then you kind of work up your way either in a party cell that's within an organization like a company, or if you're one of those people who's basically you know chosen to go into the actual governmental pillar moving up uh, uh, upwards, that becomes increasingly less transparent as you go on. And one last thought on that that I think is, is very indicative. I think, again, most people who know about China will know this, but it sometimes comes as a surprise. Once you're in the system at the top, 
it's very difficult to essentially reach a status of retirement in the sense that we'd expect from elder statesmen and stateswomen in other countries. In other words, the kind of speaker circuit, the Davos circuit, in which you know former members of uh, you know British prime ministers, you know, uh, one a week, every week, as as they are at the moment, um, or uh, U.S. presidents, or you know French presidents, whatever. You know, they go on the circuit. Some of it's about you know getting a bit of a, a post um, uh, presidential income, but some of it is also about being there as a figure who's in the world to actually you know give the benefit of of, of 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 what they've known. Chinese top leaders don't tend to do that. And in some cases, it's, I think, you know, a lack of interest in doing it. But in other cases, it's just actually a prohibition. Really, really top leaders are not going to be allowed to go out and gallivant and wander around the world, except under occasional very close supervision. Because once you're in this sacred space of the party, it's not something that you get to leave again. And I think that that provides a great deal of the explanation of why when we look at the Chinese Communist Party as if it were a party like the Republicans or the Conservative Party or in Britain or, or whatever, we find it confusing because it simply doesn't measure up against those kind of standards. You know, Rana, listening to to you and and to Jude and 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 to Cindy, I'm not quite sure how to I'm not quite sure how to articulate this, but it, it seems to me, um, as the non-China expert of the group, that in a way, and particularly what you're talking about, it seems to me almost I almost feel that we're in a in a moment for the first time let me try to say it and then you can destroy this but we're almost in a moment for the first time about actually thinking about the party at least over the last let's say generation what i mean by that is for so long we presumed it was going along a path that first of all we that we could predict i.e this path of eventual globalization liberalization openness and the like it wouldn't look like peoria illinois but it was going to be something more that we could understand uh, obviously that we would create a a relationship with it we would have a cooperative relationship it might become a g2 but i guess what i'm saying is you know, we we Hollywoodized the party in the sense of we created our own image, our own vision, even while we had people like you and, and Jude and Cindy and so many others who were, of course, looking at it carefully. I'm talking about the, the sort of broader social yeah. political view. And now for the first time, there's just your comments on the sacralization. For the first time, I think we're actually having to deal with the party as the party. If that makes sense. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it does make sense. I'd say two two quick things, if I may, because I mean, Jude, again, is going to have wonderful things to say on this, I'm sure. But two things. One is that I'd say that it's not the first time. It's a return, because I think back in the 50s to the 70s under Mao, the party was at the center, not only of Chinese life, but also the Western analysis, because all we got really were party documents. We had to read them again, almost like kind of theological documents, you know, sent to the outside world so we can try to interpret what the heck was going on in something like the Cultural Revolution. Uh, and so in that sense, I think the intervening period, let's say the 1980s up to the you know early 2000s, we didn't look at the party because, first of all, there were internal changes in the party, like an attempt in the early you know, 2000s to move more um, of China's political activity towards the government as opposed to the party. I know these things can't be easily differentiated, but institutions like the state council became you know, more prominent. And people were even talking about, ooh, will the National People's Council become a real parliament? Spoiler, no. But uh, you know, it was there in the, uh, in the discussion, to, to, be, uh, to be fair. So in other words, the party sat back and sat in this world in which a lot of people, including in China, but certainly in the outside world, were saying, well, you know, it's called the Communist Party, but it's kind of pragmatic, and they're interested in the markets and business, and they all wear nice suits. 
suits and, you know, uh, and they forgot something that I think has always been there. And this is why occasionally you want to get historians in on the uh, on the conversation before they get you know, kicked out for, uh, uh, for talking, talking irrelevances. The Chinese Communist Party is very proud of its own history. And that history is one of revolution. It is one of violence. It is one of overturning what existed in the past. Uh, you know, the famous Mao quote, uh, but I'll give it to you again. Uh, Revolution is not a dinner party. It cannot be so refined. You know, it's not like make a, uh, sewing a piece of embroidery. It cannot be so fine. A revolution is the violent overthrow of one class by another. Now, Chinese Communist Party doctrine has changed immeasurably in all sorts of important ways, not least its embrace of a different type of globalization during the, the late 20th, 30th, 21st century. But the the, the central part of its self-image, connections to the Long March, connections to the Second World War, connections to Mao's revolution, which even though the Cultural Revolution has been, you know, regretted as a, as a disastrous period, there's never been and never will be any rejection of the Communist Revolution as a whole, as a transformative act, which not only changed China and the world. And understanding that those things really mattered and matter in the present tense to those who make up the leadership, I think, is really central to understanding why the party has to come back into the way that we see the world. And one final thought, some people have said, and I know that people on this call, not through this, not least through the spectator and other places, have some familiarity with the, the saying that the British Conservative Party is the longest standing party of the world because it's so good at changing its identity over, uh, over time. Some might say that I couldn't possibly comment. But Although the Chinese Communist Party has a shorter history than the, the British Conservative Party, they probably stand about equal in terms of being able to change the ostensible policy, their strategics on policy, on the turn of a new 50 pence piece with the head of King Charles on it. I didn't say dine there because uh, I want to make sure we stay culturally specific. But on the flip side of that, keeping something at the core that says who they actually are. And you may dislike or like what that central core is. That's not the issue. The issue is that the Chinese Communist Party know who they are. And that's always at the center of the fact that they can change the way they project that into the outside world. And to understand how that happens, you have to understand the party. Although the Conservative Party are much better at getting rid of their leaders these days than, uh, than the Chinese Communist Party is the managing. Conservative Party is, yeah. <laughs> six, week, six, six week term limits, yes. As opposed to 11 years, yeah. Of course. Well, and without getting political, we, we, we may see if the Democratic Party here does the same thing in the next election. So we're, we're, in, a, we're in a cycle of these. Yes, that's true. Jude, actually picking up on that part uh, of, what, of what Rana just said, because we had this view, both I think of the the competence of the party, and then again our view of what the party was, what it was becoming, at least over that past generation from the 1980s forward, uh, I think that's why so many people latched on to the Hu Jintao moment, that episode, that for the first time, it seemed that you were seeing something not scripted. Uh, it, it may have been scripted, but it seemed that you were seeing something not scripted and having watched a couple of different versions of it, I mean, it, it was, it was, there were so many different, you know, uh, not important, but, you know, different takeaways from it. And the, the, first of all, the, the stolidity of basically everyone on the, on the dais and everyone in the room, no one responded, no one looked. Then the, the, the sort of Wang Huning coming in and trying to, uh, to, to sort of calm things down a little bit. I mean, it was just very interesting and clearly who not wanting to leave. And so Rana gave his take. I just don't know if, if you had any 
take on it. And, and again, in a sense, maybe of our seeing, and of course, then of course, she just sitting there stolidly and then giving some orders to uh, the, the, the flunky who was coming in to remove who, but for the first time, it sort of seemed that we were seeing the party as the party was behind closed doors in a weird brief moment. I don't know if that's fair. And if you wanted to say anything, and then we'll get onto a, a real question. I want to ask you about the work report, but any, any sense or anything you'd like to mention on the who issue? Uh, I'm glad you asked me, because yes, uh, I, I have a very non-apocalyptic interpretation. I have an utterly banal Occam's razor interpretation, and I've been tearing my hair out Excellent. the past <laughs> several days as I have heard, I you know, as I've heard tales of what transpired and the list Hu Jintao was trying to grab so he could hold it up to Xi Jinping and say, "Not on my watch." <laughs> You know, I think Rana hit some key points. You know, for, first and foremost, um, I, I should say this is a Rorschach test. Um, I, I think it is one of those you you can. It's like there's a Bruder film of Kennedy. You can watch it a hundred thousand times. You will not get the truth from it, but you bring your priors to it. Um, my priors are that the Communist Party is run by human beings that put their pants on one leg at a time, and and although there is. Um, there is, um, as as Ron was just saying, thinking about this as with some religiosity here. You know, there is there's ceremony and there's ritual, and the party congress is is a moment to project unity. This was also to me what I found is so absolutely fascinating about the footage is the human element that you saw unveiled right there. This was a thousand percent not a scripted moment. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely not. That's not how a party congress occurs. That's not how Xi Jinping or communists deal with things. Rana's 100% right. If you're taking somebody down, it sure as heck is not going to happen on in front of cameras and mar a moment that is designed for political theater to demonstrate unity and solidity within the party. It is not the moment what I think occurred. Um, uh, I think it's very clear that they knew Hu Jintao was, was unwell, but he's a general secretary. Um, he deserves a place on the podium. And again, thinking about theater and unity, not having him on the podium or at the last moment deciding you're not going to have him there raises far more profound questions. I bet in the green room they go, you know what, he can probably sit there for two hours. We, we, we can get through this. The key footage is the footage a minute and a half before where what you see happening is he's sitting right next to Xi Jinping. He's in the center of these cameras, which have just happened. The show had not started quite yet. They're waiting for the state cameras to get set up. And, and they begin to see for a minute and a half, Li Shu sit there with his arm saying to him, no, just leave the damn folder there. Don't open it. We're about to start. Just leave the damn thing there. It's a prop. You, you know what's in there. <laughs> leave the damn thing. And I bet what happened is Xi Jinping, by the way, Xi Jinping is watching this. I bet what happened is they said, we're seeing a senior moment. We're seeing early stages of a senior moment in what is going to be a, a moment of, of, of scripted importance. Um, Xi Jinping, you see the aide come over. He originally starts to go to Hu Jintao. Xi Jinping beckons him over, speaks to him a minute. And I, I, I agree in, in a somewhat, you know, um, without a lot of empathy. But again, remember the event. This is the Oscars. Mm. This is this is a state of the union. This is the most scripted gosh damn moment in all of Communist Party, you know, catechism. And, and, and let's keep symbolism. it clean. Let's keep it clean. So, you know, what what he says is, you know, <laughs> we don't want this to happen, but better to get him off now than to have him start 
you know, you know, uh, making paper airplanes and sending them. Um, why does Hu Jintao not want to leave? Because what do you have a do you have an old relative or a father or a grandfather, um, and you try to tell them, you know, you're sick, you're feeling unwell, or yeah, yeah, um, yeah. you've you've had you've had enough beers, you know, I'll drive home, and you see the stubbornness of being an old guy, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, sort of come in. So I just think we've way overinterpreted this. Um, this was not an intentional humiliation. Was it a humiliation? Maybe, but I want to again echo what Rana said. If Xi Jinping was looking for a muscle flex, taking a doddering old Alzheimer's, you know, someone clearly suffering from Alzheimer's who has already been more or less defenestrated um, and ushering them off the stage is not a power flex in, in China or, or, or really anywhere. You want a power flex, you take down a, a, a security official, you take down someone you know, who's at the peak of their power, you don't take down a gray-haired you know, retired official. So end of, end, of, end of my version. Okay, so that, that was great. I think you have put the definitive nail in the coffin of, of <laughs> the conspiracy theorists. Um, I, I just, I just think it was, you know, to, to the general agreement that we have that, you know, a moment unscripted is so rare. And that's what Cindy was asking. It was remarkable because of, because it was in a, in the most scripted event in the Chinese calendar. Yeah, It was a moment where you saw human beings. I mean, looking at Lee John Shu, I thought that was the most fascinating part of this. Right. And you saw Wang Huning kind of pulling him down, you know, intervening at the margin. I, yeah. It was, I thought that was utterly fascinating. I mean, really, listen, we're back into Kremlinology. This is exactly what it used to be. But let me let me ask a more substantive question then, um, because I know that that you do follow this a lot. The core of uh, for those who aren't as familiar, the, the the sort of key document that comes out of the Party Congress is called the Work Report. It's delivered by the General Secretary, which means Xi Jinping. And uh, again, this is once every five years. Interestingly, it comes a week after the U.S. National Security Strategy, which also comes out once every few years, was released. Now they're not they're not uh, analogous. They're not exactly similar, but. In the sense of the sort of top level documents that reveal supposedly the thinking of uh, of both governments of how they view the world and and goals that they have and supposedly strategies to achieve them, um, can you talk a little bit about the work report that she gave? Was it significant at all? Um, uh, you know, again, because we're talking about what seems to be him running the tables and his utter control. If it was significant, what are the takeaways that we and 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 our government and governments around the world should pay attention to? And then, if you can, you know, I know you've read the National Security Strategy. How do you just sort of compare them? Again, they're obviously very different, but these are the big documents that come out. In fact, there's no other really, except maybe a State of the Union address, which is a shopping list. There's no other really top level documents. So. Uh, have at it, and then we'll we'll maybe ask uh, Rana to his thoughts, and then we'll we'll start um, winding down. Um, yeah, you know, first comment is you say there are different documents, and I agree. But what's so interesting is um, there there's so much in in um, dialogue with each other. Um, that's what I find really interesting about this is if you read the two documents, you see that they are um, in this sort of circling dance where they're both. Um, framing what the international environment looks like. In China's case, of course, the work report does not mention the United States. Um, Xi Jinping never talks about America. You know, we don't talk about Bruno. Um, 
<laughs> you know, they, they often refer to some countries or external forces. I mean, the United States is all throughout the document, um, but is but is only indirectly referenced where, of course, the national security you know uh, strategy underlines, puts in all caps and, you know, puts exclamation marks. But just a few sort of brief reframing remarks about the document without going into the substance of all 62 pages. Um, you know, first and foremost is like a papal encyclical, um, this is not a hot read uh, hot take document. Um, I, you know, if, if everyone's ever read the the wonderful book by Franz Sherman, Ideology and Organization in Communist China, which came out in the early 1960s, um, again, what Rana just mentioned, part of this stream of books that were coming out looking at the party as an entity. You know, Sherman makes this great point, which I think people should bring to mind when they think about the work report. Um, you understand the meaning of this document through uh, shared group discussions that party members will be engaged in over the next days, weeks, and months. So the mean, like a biblical text, meaning, you know, interpretation comes out through repeated readings, um, groups, group readings. And of course, with what will start coming down now is missives from the top, which clarify what the interpretation of this passage is or what they meant here. So just reading the report, which I have a, you know, a, a dog-eared copy here, just reading it now and thinking you know what the true meaning is, I, I think this is something that we will need to see how the system interprets it. And of course, we ourselves will, will sort of need to see this um, play out. A, a few other comments is, you, you know, um, the bulk of the report is actually not in dialogue with the external world, it's in dialogue with, with China. So the majority of the report, if you were to read it, is summing up achievements and accomplishments of the Communist Party since the 18th, or excuse me, the 19th Party Congress. You'll see the same litany of uh, propaganda successes, which they trot out about, you know, about, you know we have eradicated poverty and reached the first centennial goal. Um, then, then there's the bulk of this, which is actually just looking at issues that are probably too protean and, and for, for you know, most external audiences about rural revitalization, um, which is looking about uh, how does China cultivate uh, high-class human talent? Um, how, do they, um, uh, how do they deal with um, you know, moving up the, the manufacturing ladder to be you know, positioning China as a, as a high-tech, um, innovative power? Um, so uh, the most of this document is about transmitting to domestic audiences and crucially the Communist Party broad strategic messages about what we need to do. And a final few observations, though. It is true this document um, frames a much more um, fractious, volatile, hostile external environment. Um, many have taken note of, of two key phrases, which are in one case absent, in one case modified. Um, the absent one is that peace and development are the keystones or the theme of the times. Um, that sounds like this a little bit of a turgid phrase, but it is meant as a broad signaler to the party that we are still in a um, benign environment. But more importantly, we can develop re devote resources more towards economic development, you know, social development, and a little bit less to the military or security. So that phrase is absent. And second, and critically, they would say that China is in this window of strategic opportunity, a phrase which came out in first 2001, but actually at, at the 16th Party Congress in 2002, and, and was really signaling We've got a broad runway in the international environment for China to develop with relatively little external constraints. In in the now in the work report, it has a a, a hedge statement. Um, it basically says that the opportunities uh, uh, opportunities challenges and risks are concurrent. 
So yes, we still have some opportunity here, but we've seen a rise in, in risks and challenges. And as, as language later down in the approach gets a little bit more apocalyptic, Xi Jinping says that we are now in, you know, have to prepare ourselves for choppy waters and dangerous storms. Now, I don't think that's an inaccurate reframing of China's you know, external environment. What's missing, of course, is the self-reflection about how China's own actions itself may have contributed to this much more hostile world. But as a diagnosis of where China, where China stands, I, I think that's accurate. And then um, final thought is, um, there are areas, though, where I think we, we Xi Jinping surprised us or the dog didn't bark. And I would say that's on the issue of Taiwan. Um, there was there was a lot of speculation leading into the party congress that the work report was going to unveil new language that was much, much more aggressive on Taiwan and, and perhaps included something that looked like a more elevated specific timeline. That was not there. And um, all the headlines in Bloomberg and Wall Street Journal, I think, just completely whiffed on this because they framed it as, you know, Xi Jinping does not rule out force to take Taiwan. That's true. Um, nor have they for 20 years. That's been the bog standard line. And I think most critically, that line of we will not you know, rule out the use of force on Taiwan comes at the very end of the Taiwan section. And the very next sentence says, um, but basically this is to deal with anti-secessionist you know, forces. The, the key you know, part of the, uh, uh, the work report on Taiwan, if I'm reading the, the message he was trying to signal is, um, we've got this, we've still got some runway and we've still got some time. Um, now, that may be because he wants to push aside some forces within the military or, or within China that are actually chomping at the bit to do this sooner. And, and, you know, Xi Jinping understands, which I think we all should, China's grand strategy is not take Taiwan. China has bigger fish to fry. They, they're thinking about global order, although Taiwan is, of course, a critical core interest. They don't. That's not the entirety of their grand strategy. So I feel like to some extent what Xi Jinping was doing there is saying, um, I got this. I haven't failed. Um, we've still got some runway and we've still got some options. That doesn't mean we're, everything's fine in the Straits. Um, this is just the highest level political assessment, uh, strategic assessment. Um, but nonetheless, it is an important one. That sort of that sort of sense of urgency. I will get very, very worried when I start seeing in these very authoritative documents that they use language to the effect of, you know, the secessionist forces are not a minority on the island. You know, they are becoming a majority. That would be something which I think would would signal a fundamental shift. But right now, it was continuity over drastic change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Rana, just picking up something something you mentioned earlier, um, and was also in the work report was about zero COVID. I mean, as as a overseas Chinese uh, ethnic person living in London, I'm quite keen for zero COVID to be over so that I can at least go to China. But it's not looking like zero COVID is going anywhere, is it? It isn't. And I think probably the last thought I, I, I give is is on something that's going to be very important in terms of the way in which China interacts with the world for at least the next you know few years. Um, I think that there are two reasons, essentially, that that zero COVID policy is not going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, one is political. I mean, it is very closely associated with um, with Xi Jinping. And I think that it's just going to be particularly with the, the makeup, as we said, of the new standing committee. Um, impossible to think of anyone in a senior position pushing back in a way that we did get sort of muffled, but real signals that some people who are no longer on the inside, Li Keqiang, Hu Chuba, and others had actually done previously, you know, senior figures, but not allowed into the, the inner sanctum of the temple this last uh, last week. The other reason, of course, is virological. Essentially, China has not had 
efficient, effective mRNA vaccines through a large proportion of the population. And actually, for cultural reasons, I mean, you'll know a lot about this, um, Cindy, it's not been possible to uh, get large numbers of the elderly population in China vaccinated. So I think that that is, you know, also one of the fears that if some proper immunization uh, or, you know, herd immunity uh, strategy isn't uh, undertaken, then actually they could genuinely be very, very damaging health effects to older people in, in China. And that's a problem that's actually very, very hard to solve. I've been reading the news this morning. There's yet more trials of some of these nasal um, vaccines, and you know there may be some success there, but no, no, t- no, no reports I've yet seen suggest that these have the effectiveness of wide-scale injection of people with Pfizer, Moderna, and the other top-quality Western vaccines that have basically changed the game in pretty much everywhere else in the uh, uh, in the world. But you know, it's one of those things that we're definitely going to have to also take into account in terms of this new China, which is more distanced from the rest of the world. Perhaps isolated is not the right word, but definitely it's not just going to snap back to what it was in 2019, early 2020, before the pandemic actually came about. Rana, thank you for uh, the the last comment, sort of a looking ahead at at some of the things that uh, obviously from the economic perspective, as well as the, as Cindy was mentioning, the social and political perspective uh, will be uh, of concern to those wondering uh, to what degree you know we'll be able to reinteract with China uh, and when and how. I mean, this has just been a fantastic discussion. I think it could go on for quite some time, um, but I think uh, we should we should probably wind it wind it down. Um, and and so I want to thank uh, Jude Blanchett and Rana Mitter for joining us, Rana. Uh, professor of history at Oxford University, uh, author uh, most recently of China's Good War, How World War II is Shaping a New Nationalism, and also the award-winning Forgotten Ally, China's World War II, uh, and Jude Blanchett uh, of CSIS, Center for Strategic International Studies, and author of China's New Red Guards, The Return of Radicalism and the Rebirth of Mao Zedong. So thank you for joining us today on the Pacific Century. So, Cindy, that was a, a not surprisingly an absolutely fantastic conversation. Um, I thought, as we've done before, maybe we would turn to you to talk a little bit uh, about what's going on in the UK. Since we last talked, there has been quite a bit of activity. We talked about the passing of the Queen and and the ascension of King Charles. Uh, no one, I think, expected uh, to see what happened in the intervening month, which was um, the rise and fall of Liz Truss, uh, the rise of Rishi Sunak. Um, but there, there's not only implications for our alliance, there's implications for China. Um, anyway, what, what's been your take on what's going on? Of course, Rishi Sunak just came in only a day uh, ago, so not a lot of ground to talk about, but already, what do you see happening? And are you just surprised at what's happened? <laughs> well, it's been an incredible time to be British and to follow British politics. Um, luckily enough, I was actually on holiday last week, so I felt like I had some distance to the bin fire. But um, when it comes to the British relationship with China, Rishi Sunak definitely has much more of a question mark hanging over what he believes in compared to the former Prime Minister Liz Truss, who made it very clear exactly what she thought about China and various human rights issues and how tough she was going to be. 
Rishi Sunak, over the summer when he was running for the leadership the first time round, made this kind of series of pledges. He he named China as the as Britain's number one threat, which is a quite a big descriptor, um, and uh, pledged various things, including shutting down all 30 of the UK's Confucius Institutes, uh, forming some kind of a NATO alliance in order to counter Chinese cyber espionage, all this sort of stuff. We haven't heard him talk about it much recently, only because the domestic politics here has happened so fast. Right. We haven't heard much about policy at all. What's interesting, though, is that last year when he was chancellor, he gave a speech where he said, actually, too often our debate on China lacks nuance that we can't just ignore China, we can't just completely decouple for them, but we also can't just keep keep on trading as if nothing's changed. So in that speech, he placed himself somewhere in the middle, which obviously is a very wide spectrum. And I'm not sure how to read that speech in relation to the pledges that he made this summer, because it does seem like that was much, much harder. And you do wonder whether or not it was um, to appeal to certain voters in the Conservative Party, members of them who were at that point were the deciding factor. So I think we will have to wait and see. He has kept Liz Truss as uh, foreign secretary, but James Cleverly is someone we didn't know much about in terms of his views on China anyway, and people just assumed that he would um, basically do what Liz Truss told him to. So now that the boss has changed, I don't know what will happen there. The next big flashpoint in British-Chinese relations is the Integrator Review, which, Misha, we, we've talked about on the podcast before. Liz Truss had started a review of the Integrator Review before she left. So the question is, is that continuing now? And what will that find now? Because Liz Truss had suggested that she wanted China to be redesignated as a threat instead of a systemic competitor. So is Rishi Sunak going to go through with that kind of rhetoric now? I think that's the first test. For and him. and who uh, is advising him on China? Do we do we know? Is you know he has a there's a national security advisor who's I think usually seconded from the Foreign and Commonwealth Development yes. Office. Um, so do we know who's who's in there talking to him about China? So the main person on China is someone in Downing Street called John Bew, who is an academic by training. Um, and he is actually uh, right. inherited from the Boris Johnson years by Liz Truss and now by Rishi Sunak. And I understand that he's leading this review of the integrated review. Um, there were whispers that he had to be his original draft had to be watered down by the Boris Johnson administration. So he might be quite happy to go further. But so, so I think that's the main person. But to be honest, for Rishi Sunak, he's got such a massive economic intray to deal with just in terms of the UK's own problems. I would be surprised if we hear much about his foreign policy other than support for Ukraine um, in the coming months. Well, that's great. And and, and uh, we, we, many of us here, and I do, we know John Bew and we know he's been involved. And in fact, I think largely ran the integrated review uh last time when it came out in, in 2020 so we'll we'll wait to see what what happens um and and maybe overall we'll, we'll come back and talk about um Rishi Sunak and foreign policy and and economic policy I mean it's the Pacific century but you know Britain is is part of that Pacific world and and the Atlantic world so maybe we'll come back and talk about all of it but as always Cindy uh thank you so much for joining me Cindy you of the spectator. Uh, in the UK and host of the very popular Chinese Whispers podcast. I saw that Cindy was recently described as, quote, the podcaster explaining Chinese society to the world, end quote, which is, which, which is, well, that's pretty good though. Um, yeah, so, but my mom. <laughs> uh, it's always great to have you as a co-host. Thank you so much for bringing 
knowledge and gravitas to the Pacific century, and I hope we'll see you again soon. Misha, you're too kind. Thank you so much. Well, for the Pacific Century, this is Misha Oslin. Thank you for listening, and we will see you soon. Take care. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.